So the pressure of the complexity and the volume in the day, that in itself, in individual events, you would say, look, that's just part of our job. That's just what we do. And that's fine. So that's sort of the coping stress, if you like. But then when it migrates and on a continuum, it can then move across to being a time when it's either conscious or not conscious about not coping. And for me, that's when we're moving into trauma, where if unchecked, and if not acknowledged is when you really get to the far extreme of this continuum where people suicide. I'm Gerardo Poli. I'm Hubert Hemstra, and this is The Vet Vault. Hello, Vet Vaulters, and welcome back to The Vet Vault. When we started this podcast, one of our big aims was to talk about the good stuff about vet science. Both Gerardo and I felt that there was a lot of talk about the bad stuff. A lot of people complaining about how hard it was to be a vet and just a lot of negativity really. So we said, let's get together all of the vets we can find who are happy with their vet careers and talk to them to find out how they do it. Our aim was basically to get more positivity out there into the vet world. But here's the thing though, we can focus on the good but it doesn't make the bad go away. And the reality is that a lot of people in our profession are struggling. And what we're learning is that whilst it's great to talk about the good stuff, it's also important to sometimes take a long hard look at the things that aren't that great. We cannot consistently get to the good without getting to know the bad. So with that in mind, we have a few episodes lined up to tackle some of the biggest issues in veterinary science. The stuff that makes people say, enough's enough, I'm out here. So to kick us off, for this episode, we talked to a duo who are out on a mission to not only talk about the hard stuff, but to train people to get better at identifying and get better at dealing with the psychological challenges of our job. Rhonda Andrews is a psychologist with almost three decades of experience. She's also the principal psychologist and managing director of the Barrington Center, which provides organizational and personal psychological services to a large number of sectors, both in Australia and abroad for industries like government, education, legal, entertainment, and emergency services. Recently, Rhonda has partnered with one of our own, Dr. Louisa Johnson. Dr. Louisa is a veterinarian who has a special interest in staff welfare and new grad care, and she is the founder of Safer Vets. Rhonda and Louisa have been working together to adapt the systems of support program for the veterinary industry. Systems of Support, or SOS, is a positive psychological health program that was designed for high-stress professionals and is perfect for the vet world. It's an evidence-based program that helps to reduce the negative psychological impacts associated with work. That's the bad stuff that we talked about before, the things that can lead to anxiety, burnout, depression, or worse. I'll put a link to this fantastic program in the episode description as well as in our show notes. In this conversation, we talk about some ideas that we're all familiar with, like how to live with those damn self-critical voices that we all carry around inside our heads, as well as some concepts that are brand new to me. Now, if I say trauma, is that something that you associate with your job? Not really, right? But have you heard of cumulative trauma or what about vicarious trauma? 
In this episode, Rhonda and Louisa introduce these very important concepts of those insidious, unexpected, sometimes small little things that add up and add up and add up until it can suddenly become overwhelming. But don't worry, it's not a doom and gloom and fear-mongering episode. This is a conversation about identifying the risks and putting preventative actions in place to protect ourselves as well as our friends and colleagues. Before we kick off, just a word of thanks to our friends at Hasker Australia for supporting this series of episodes. When we spoke to them to see what message they wanted us to get out to you, they told us nothing. We're happy to support anything that helps veterinary teams take better care of themselves. So there you go. No sponsorship message other than take care of yourself. Come on, surely we have to say something. Let's just say that if you're trying to reimagine the way you run your in-house labs, as well as your digital radiology, and you really should, then go to heska.com.au to find out what is possible. Now, back to our guests. Please enjoy Rhonda Andrews and Louisa Johnson. Vetvelters, Rhonda and Louisa, welcome to the Vetvelt. Thank you very much. It's great, great to, to be, be here. here. <laughs> Rhonda, you can't wave. Nobody can see you, mate. I'm waving. Hello. Hello. I brush my hair for Half this. the time, I'm sure you guys think I'm not here, but I am here every single time. So we've got a psychologist, yes, Rhonda, and a veterinarian. And I suspect we're going to get into pretty deep, serious ground during this conversation. But let's start a little bit lighter. I've asked this of a few guests at the beginning of the show. Once I drove down, down the highway and there was a big graffiti on, a, on the side of a building that said, bad decisions make for good stories. I and, like I, that. and I saw that. I was like, "That's a really good question for the podcast. Is that a, is that true or false? And if you <laughs> if you think it's true, then have you got an example for us? I don't know who wants to take that. Oh well, yes, I think I can um, talk to that topic. Although I don't know if it's a bad decision or just evidence of bad parenting or something. <laughs> but my husband and I are both vets, and we have two small children, and. I think a lot of vets would resonate with the morning routine can often be fairly chaotic when you're both trying to get to work. And this particular morning we got up, one person was changing nappies, someone was feeding the cat, someone was putting the rubbish bins out, there was coffee being made, bills being paid and sort of a whirlwind of activity as we all got out the door. We dropped the first child off at kindy, everything was going well, and then sort of realised that the toddler was not going so well was quite snivelly and whingy and in a really foul mood I turned around and said what's going on this is so not like you you know you're so grumpy at which point she said I'm really upset because I'm hungry because nobody fed me breakfast (laughs) oh my gosh these supposedly high achieving human beings who forget the basic human needs of our child but I'm sure a lot of vets can resonate with that and, and sort of all the balls juggling in the air and, and maybe not doing it successfully all the time. But I, I don't know if it's a bad decision or whether it was a bad decision for us, for us to have kids or whether it was just a bad moment. But anyhow. I, I think that's just reality. I think it's reality <laughs> because like my recollections of childhood is that I used to go to sleep in my school uniform, wake up in my school uniform, go to school in my school uniform <laughs> and then do that for three days straight. And then someone someone then said, what's that mark on your neck? And it's like, <laughs> what mark? And then it's like, they, they lick their finger and they touch it. And it's like, well, oh, that's dirt. And I'm like, like, okay, it's time for a shower now. It's time for a shower now. <laughs> so if I can get, if I can get through life 
<laughs> if I can get through life wearing the same clothes for three days straight, which makes me think that I probably wore the same undies for three days straight. That's impressive. That is yes. quite impressive. You can probably survive a lot. So I'll, I'll share one. Bad decision makes a great story. So this is a bit more lighthearted than yours, Louisa. <laughs> but um, this is quite a few years ago, but it's a, a ripper. Uh, and I'd saved and saved and saved to buy some beautiful French lingerie. And uh, we were going out for a lovely meal in Lagan Street, Carlton. And um, as we were walking down the street, I just felt a million dollars. Thought this is fantastic. Got all the underwear on, the gear on that I'd real. I've just loved all my life. <laughs> now, as we're walking along, I feel the elastic go, and I'm thinking, what the hell's going on here? And I can feel the knickers dropping. And I'm thinking, right at this point, do I grab the sides of myself and try and hold it all together or do I just let it drop? So I thought, just take it, chill pill, let it drop, step (laughs) over it, keep walking. So I made the decision just to let it drop, walk over, only to hear this little voice behind going, lady, lady. You've lost your undies. <laughs> <laughs> this is in Lagan Street Carton with hundreds, hundreds of people oh all sitting gosh. outside having a beautiful meal, only to know there was a media guy there who <laughs> thought this was the perfect opportunity <laughs> of taking a few snaps. And I ended up on the front page. Oh my word, this is worse. No way. That is that is lady the- lost knickers. Oh, and they have no. oh my the gosh. Fr- is, is that on the web? Let's put that in the show notes. Sure. <laughs> that is like a nightmare. Yes, we need a link to that, Rhonda. Yes. yes. So there we that go. Epic. Bad, de- bad decision. Don't you have that, that newspaper clipping saved somewhere? Yeah. Uh, somewhere, yes. Oh, please. You have to send it to me. <laughs> I can okay, put it in the show. I've got, two, two, I've got a comment for both of your stories. First, Louisa, I love your story because once I was mentally preparing for one of the one of these interviews and i was thinking okay let's ask that question again and i I thought i wonder what i would say if somebody asked me that question and the first thing that popped into my head was kids (laughs) just immediately bad bad decision bad decision decision. (laughs) lots of good stories (laughs) Rhonda, for you it's hilarious my um, my wife's granny uh long long since passed away she had a very firm belief that you do not leave the house without a Bobby pin, is it? No, what, what's the yeah. little... No, oh, the, the, yes. the, 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 safety, uh, pin. safety pin. Safety thank pin, thank you. Safety mm-hmm. pin uh, stuck through your knickers in case you have some sort of underwear drama. Malfunction. You can malfunction it. Oh, and, she, and, and, and she was 90-something <laughs> when she passed away and to the final day, she never left the ho- home without a safety pin. Tucked what, a in <laughs> what a lady. What a lady. So she's... She's a great example, Hubert, of um, consequence management, thinking what's the secondary and tertiary consequences that can happen, even if it is French lingerie. (laughs) Whoa, well, that's really cool. I like that. The consequence management, consequence management. Rhonda's got all the lingo. It's like, it's like, okay, the consequence management, like one of the biggest fears we have as veterinarians is making the wrong call, Mm. you know, and then all of a sudden, like myself personally, it's funny, Hubert and I uh, just did a podcast about two weeks ago about the board and I got caught in front of the board again, right? Literally two days after we recorded an episode about 
what it's like if you get <laughs> yes. in front of the board. He phones me and says, guess not, what? Not relating to the podcast. About no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Oh, no. It was about a case that I was involved in. And like, it's legit. Like, I think it's reasonable. We and she actually told the owner, look, if you want to take this further, go to the board. So hence, I'm in front of the board. Um, but consequence management uh, is, is one of the hardest things that I feel that veterinarians face because, you know, like as humans mm. and, and what, one of the things that I feel is that we don't integrate the wins as best that we can. like so many times. How many times do you do good in the world? How many times do you do good in the day? And all of a sudden one thing happens and the yeah. consequences and you're like, I'm never going to practice this again. So what does consequence management mean? And like, and yeah. That is so true. I, I totally agree. You know, I've been mentoring a lot of new grads and I mean, I see it in experience vets as well. I know I've done it myself where you can have an amazing day and one case or one negative comment from a client can send you into a bit of a tailspin that then you then ruminate about that case. And I think Rhonda would, would see that a lot in professionals in general. Yeah, and you do. And it's a really good point, Gerardo, that you make because it is that imbalance between what's all the great wins that we've had, however small or large in the day, and then what's one or partial one or maybe even our perception of what's occurred that may, may not be shared with anyone else. But yet exactly what Louisa said, we ruminate or we self-blame or we judge ourselves and then we're looking at, okay, well, what's the, the consequence of that? One good thing I'll, I'll share with you is we do a lot around consequence management and we actually do it for both the good and the bad. So we're in a sense, rather than judging it, it's up in the planning of before I perform this operation or before I actually do X, Y, or Z, what is it? What's my first, you know, what's plan A? And if something goes awry, what's plan B? And so there's, if you like that, um, those thinking of those options beforehand. So then you're not caught on the fly or you're not judging yourself after the fact. Yeah, that's actually really good. And, and to, add, to, to add a clinical perspective to that, it's like I'm going into a surgery for a splenectomy, right? What are the, and so sometimes you just jump in there and just get your way through it and somehow everyone gets through it. But then you could ask yourself like five questions, like one, you know, what are the complications we're likely to factor, like encounter yeah. hypotension and potentially death, okay? So how are we going to manage that hypertension? What instruments do we need? Do we need blood? Should we defrost it? What are the contingencies for hypertension and so forth? Mm. So that's consequence management mm. moving into a clinical situation. I, don't uh, know. I, I agree. I think, I think sometimes I'm almost like a doomsday prepper. Like I sort of go overboard in that consequence management to the point where I think I almost convinced the client to start digging the hole for the patient in the backyard, you know, like it's just like it's a vaccine or something and they're sort of choosing the urn and it's sort of a case of hang on, hang on, I actually can achieve this and I will probably get your pet through this, but I've kind of talked them around all the potential negative outcomes because I'm just so mindful of managing their expectations so that we're all on the same page and there's no kind of nasty surprises when it bleeds mm. out or you know, need to quickly get blood into it or something like that. So I, I, maybe I've gone too far the other way, but I completely agree. It's sort of going through what, what could potentially happen here and what do we need and, and being ready for the different outcomes. It's a skill, isn't it? 
Mm. Yeah, and I think certainly um, if we look at it from a psychological perspective and a, a cognitive perspective, it actually is really good to stop that rumination and stop that judgment of yourself. It's it's a great catalyst to short circuit that cycle. Um, just so both of you know, uh, Barrington Centre works very closely in the emergency management industries across Australia and, and Asia Pacific, and that's one of our key trainings for what I call first responders and vets are the same you are first responders and so therefore that's something that we are instilling in their thinking and in their if you like their working paradigm so that we stop at the far end any post-traumatic stress okay so you say that's important to to stop that rumination process because I mean that's that's huge in outside of work as well, and I think us vets are particularly good at ruminating. I mean, I sent you that question that I had from a listener about she had um, she, she suggested this as a topic to discuss, and she said she'd done her membership exams and pre-exam, but then also post-writing it. That going over it in your head, going, "Man, I stuffed that up. Man, I'm such an idiot." Why did you do that? And and psyching yourself out of doing something, or afterwards beating the crap out of yourself. Emotionally, emotionally and mentally uh, so we need to stop it but how do you stop it what what's what are the tools that you equip your clients with Rhonda yeah and it's a really good point because I think we need to differentiate you know reflection so mm. it's important to reflect on what happened because you can't stop personality types like vets who are perfectionists by yeah. trade yep. and are, are going to say that and judge themselves anyhow so don't you can't take the, you know throw the baby out with the bathwater. so you've got to say that's what they will do but then it's about being able to say okay rather than then just going through that uh, broken record of just, you know, you're an idiot. Why did you do that? That's a stupid thing to have done. You knew the answer anyhow. Why didn't you pull that out when you really needed to? You've spoken about it so many times, blah, blah, blah. And, and I think what is important is that it is getting rid of the criticism of the I, you, you know, or you, I'm, I'm an idiot, I'm stupid, because as soon as you start to tag that language, you can't get away from it. It then becomes like it, 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 it morphs into everything that you do. So it, it bleeds out, not just from that exam or not from that particular operation. It starts to generalise itself. And that's where that when you ask um, Hubert about where do you start, you stop the I blame statements like I'm an idiot, that name calling, because that's the thing that then people can't actually escape from. Is, is that similar to like ownership of the language and the shit that goes on inside your head? It's like yeah. your head speaks to you all fucking day and tells you, hey, Gerardo, you're a dickhead. You know, hey, Gerardo, you're a dumb nut. Oh, my God, Gerardo, you forgot the differentials yeah. for diarrhea for a puppy, right? Right. And but like, because my brain yeah. speaks to me all day, it tells me all sorts yeah. of like horrible things. All right? of our brains do. Yes. All of yeah. our brains yes. do. And I think that it's not until we tune into those thought patterns that we can identify that they are actually inherently fairly negative um, at times. And I think that we're definitely our own worst enemies. And I think that a lot of vets could benefit from work to improve their own self-esteem and their own inner voice. Self-talk. Yeah, and the self-talk, and it can be something you can be trained to improve and learn to move away from it being so negative because 
it's unhelpful. Is it a, a fact of just, okay, because my take in it is that my brain speaks to me all day and I just decide to go, yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll let that go, mm. right? Because I can't control whatever the hell this mm. fella in here says. Mm. And slowly I train them by train him by accepting the things that I want to listen to. Um, but like my feel is that every time I fought something, every time I've gone like, no, 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 no. This is not me. You know, like, no, 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 no. It just feels like it perpetuates. Like, like, I don't know. Does, is, is there like what you resist persists kind of thing with your head? Oh, totally. Rhonda. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, you're so right because um, what's behind that Gerardo is that that's probably, it's got so much force behind it that you've already given it a big lot of space. So as soon as you say, no, stop it, don't do that. It just goes, bang, I'm just going to give you it a hundred percent more than what you just had. And, and that's that little attention seeking part in you going, hey, don't forget about me. And so what we know is something that you try and shove down and stop is probably one of the biggest um, things that is happening with you. So rather than attacking it head on, because it'll just take you to the kill, is actually just being able to say, I hear you, but actually do I want to accept you 100% or do I want to make a slight variation on what you're telling me? And it's sort of like chipping away and start to slowly change parts of that message rather than trying to take it on full bore and try and say, I'm going to whack you out of 100%. I want to go back quickly, Rana. I feel like we've moved past what you were starting to say because we're talking about the theory, but I, st I still want to know the, how do you put the rabbit to the road? So you say we don't use that I'm an idiot language, mm. uh, which I, I like. I heard somebody said the other day that the, the biggest bully that you'll ever meet lives inside your head. And, yeah. and that's such a fact, isn't it? So, so yeah. how do you speak about it? How do you change that language? What do you say differently? Yeah, and I think um, certainly, Hubert, in that, what's really important is uh, is a whole range of different things. And the first one is, yeah, to, to drop the, the, the judgment or the name-calling about yourself. The second is to actually put it on a scale of, of how bad is this? Like from zero to ten, is this a catastrophe? Has this now damaged my total profession? Am I going to be out on the street because no one will ever want me as a vet? And so it's ranking it from zero to 10, 10 being the worst thing that's ever happened in your life. So you start to then put it on a catastrophe scale. So then you can um, see the variations because when you start to self-blame, everything looks bad. Like, you know, everything's at 10 out of 10. So you start to compare it with, say, what would it be if I got a phone call from the school and my three-year-old's um, unconscious? You know, how does that rank to something that, um, so, you know, I've cut a dog in the wrong spot or such yeah. such, you know, how do they compare? So it's doing that catastrophizing. I think also it is very much around what's my learning out of this so rather than just beating myself up yeah. if i've done this multiple times then yeah give yourself a whack but if this is a time that is a first or um, it's a new pattern, then, okay, what do I want to do differently? So what you're changing is I'm not just going to sit here and wallow in it. What am I going to do differently when I perform that operation or when I have that sort of client that's going to always bang on about the price? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that a lot. I, I can't remember where I heard this once. And I, this kind of works for me. This is my problem with a lot of these things is I read stuff and it resonates. And, and it, when I try it, it, it works, but then I forget to use it. Then you just slip back into all those bad habits. So it's almost like you should just practice it, practice it. It's a bit like you know, reading a book about riding a bicycle. Um, and you think, oh, I can ride it. And you just get on the bike and you smash your face into the ground. <laughs> but um, but uh, I, so, I forget where I heard this, but somebody said, hey, accept that as exactly as you say, everybody does it. So when you hear that voice beating you up, it's actually evolution. It's an ev- evolutionary advantage because it's your subconscious trying to teach you, trying to stop you from making mistakes, from getting into trouble. So if it thinks that you did something dumb or you did something that potentially it's dangerous, strong. Um, trying to keep you safe exactly so it's normal so to go okay look this is happening i recognize it's happening but it's normal i'm not crazy and then saying okay i'm gonna let you do your job uh i'm gonna give you an hour or half an hour or 20 minutes and we're gonna think about this we're gonna mull it over and i'm gonna listen and i'm gonna learn and i'm gonna write down okay what what out of this situation do you want me to learn Hmm. and when we're done with this then we're done then we shut up then you leave me alone yeah. And that, that kind of does work. I, I, I like it. So, and then when that voice comes back later, then you can go, stop, hang on, we've dealt with this. You had your appointment. You had your appointment, <laughs> yes. we're done, get away. Oh, that is super powerful to go, yeah, I'm going to give myself the next three hours to wallow and whine and and then hurt myself in my head and so forth. But, from then, but then after that, at 11 o'clock, I'm going to get to sleep and I'm going to wake up the next day and it's going to be... Yeah. yeah, I mean, it actually is very powerful, Hubert, about that sort of mini contracting because that's what that is. You know, you can hear, you can beat yourself up for X number of hours or half an hour and then that's the line in the sand. And I think the other thing that you've said, which is also important, is you talked about practice and that's a really key thing because, you know, for you as vets, you didn't go straight out of um, VCE and go, okay, now I'm a fully qualified vet, you know, mm-hmm. six years plus later, you're doing it. So it's amazing that we put the pressure on ourselves Mm. that we can go from ground zero to think we can be 100% perfect in our brains when we're not doing any practice in it, but yet we skill up in everything else. Mm. And what do you think about this, Rhonda? I always think about we're such a funny cohort, I think, as vets. We're probably no different to a lot of other professions, but we are probably largely perfectionists and quite high achievers and have been all through primary school and high school and suddenly we hit vet school and we're very, very average. And then we come out into the profession and we, we really feel like, what on earth? You know, we're faced with an appointment to do an anal gland expression and it's sort of like, oh, my gosh, I'm actually doing this. What is this? You know, it's a basic skill, but it can really stump a new grad. And so uh, maybe from the start, you sort of feel like you're on the back foot, perhaps. Yeah, and it is that comparison of the cohort, isn't it? That, Mm. you know, you've been, as you say, top of the tree for most of your life. And then you sort of become Mr. Average, Mrs. Average, Ms. Average. And it's sort of like, well, where do I fit? So it comes Mm. for me, what you're highlighting, Louisa, it comes down to how do I describe who I am? How am I measuring myself and my identity and my self-esteem? And we do that by our comparison to our peers. Okay, so so comparison to your peers, and that's really shit because, you know, some of your peers might be 10 years experienced and have gone through so many, like, more struggles and pains and so forth, right? Is, is it better to compare to where you were before or 
the, and like and acknowledge the growth that you've had? I don't know. If you're going to compare to something, what do you compare to? Yeah, and that's a uh, that's a really great point, Gerardo, because you know the theory says compare yourself with yourself. So where have you come from to? You can't help where in an innate behaviour where we go shit. How am I with Hubert? How am I with Gerardo? How am I compared to Louisa? Um, but it's 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 okay to do that, providing then that doesn't become your driver, or more importantly, your judge of yourself. Um, and so that's where it's got to be contained. And and I think that's one of the hardest things because we see that all the time where, you know, whether that's your profession, whether that's eating disorders, whether that's someone within the workplace, you know, that they're trying to aim for being someone else. And that's where for us in what we're talking about today is where that stress versus trauma can come in. Okay, yes. Let's jump into that straight away then. When I researched you and I read through some of your work that you've done for your business, um, systems, systems of Support, this program that yeah. you run out in businesses to, to work on resilience building and that. And those were two words that jumped out at me, or one word specifically, is, is trauma. Mm. It's not something I associate with our profession no. so much, but maybe I'm, I'm oblivious. I read it and went, well, is there is there trauma? Because we... You know, there's a lot of talk, and I, I think that's mm. probably why this conversation came about. A lot of talk about burnout and stress and yeah, mm. attrition from the profession and why are vets and vet nurses leaving the profession uh, in the numbers that they are and what can we do about it? Where does trauma come into all of this? Is it a thing for us? Yeah, and Louisa, perhaps um, would you yeah. like to lead on this to begin yeah. with and then I'd like to come in behind you yeah. just with some of uh, these terms. Yeah, when um, Rhonda and I started working together and collaborating and we met at the vet clinic, so Rhonda is a client at the clinic that I worked at for 13 years up until January and right. we used to just chat in the consult room and she said we've got this systems of support program that we've used for uh, other professional groups that have high levels of stress and I nearly fell over and I said oh you know maybe the vet industry or the vet profession may benefit from this and we sort of got talking um, and got quite excited about it but when we started chatting one of the things that Rhonda kept mentioning was trauma and I sort of said oh no oh, no, if we're stressed, we can get quite stressed and we can see cases that are stressful. But trauma, I don't know. I don't know, Rhonda, if it really applies. I, I'm thinking trauma is, um, you know, you've witnessed a car accident or you've had an armed robbery at home or, yeah, yeah. you know, something like this. And Rhonda said, oh, no, hang on a second, and sort of had to educate me because there are moments in our, not necessarily every day, but there are moments in our weeks or months as vets that are traumatic and I was just blown away to then tune into those and to acknowledge, oh, yeah, we probably are fairly dismissive of situations that are pretty full on that we're participating in or we are potentially not causing but our recommendations are leading to trauma being experienced by our clients. So we're sort of witnessing vicarious trauma. But there's lots of little scenarios and I think a lot of them come up on vet forums fairly frequently, you know, things like clients that are suicidal after the loss of a pet, the effect that a suicidal friend or colleague in the industry has on us, the welfare cases, the euthanasia of the healthy pet, um, you know, the animals that come in that are badly injured, that were sort of scraping up off the road or the herd health, you know, crises where the farmers are experiencing drought or they've experienced a bushfire or, you know, there's really awful scenarios. And so I think there's some of those are obviously traumatic, but other aspects of what we do, such as participating in 
euthanasias for clients where that's their primary love of their life. You know, Mm. these sorts of things definitely, I realise now, are probably quite traumatic. Mm. And and so I guess with regards to your question, Hubert, you know, about about trauma and 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 i think is exactly what louisa said and i've had this experience when i speak to to vets so the way i explain it is like on a continuum you know that yes we have stressful events and there are those that on the whole every day uh, it can be just the sheer number of people sheer number of animals that you're having to see during the day so that the, the pressure if you like of the complexity and the volume in the day and so that in itself in individual events you would say look that's just part of our job that's just what we do and that's fine so that's sort of the coping stress if you like but then when it migrates and on a continuum it can then move across to being a a time when it's either conscious or not conscious about not coping or that the, the, the complexity has increased. And for me, that's when we're moving into trauma where if unchecked and if not acknowledged is when you really get to the far extreme of this continuum where people suicide. And so for me, the trauma is really important to call out. Otherwise, we're dismissive. We're saying, because as soon as you just say the word stress, it's overused in our language now. And it's, in a sense, it's like, oh, yeah, that's just every day, like I have my breakfast. And so there's nothing, in a sense, it, it, it has a dismissive nature about it. As soon as you start talking about vicarious trauma, or cumulative trauma, people, it really takes stock. And it's important we actually name it for what it is. So for me, cumulative trauma is like the slow burn. That's the stuff that day in, day out, separately things can be coped with. But when you start to build it up over months and years, unchecked and not in any way being able to debrief or in some way process that that's when people go and you see it all the time in vets go from zero to a hundred from looking like they're coping to absolutely going shit i'm out of here i'm not taking on this job any longer i'm gone i'm heading out to the coast or you know or worse is that they withdraw completely So that's the cumulative trauma. That's that slow burn of when you keep punching holes in the bucket and it just keeps on leaking, leaking, leaking. And the other one that people don't give a name to, but I think it's really important to, is vicarious trauma. So that's the stuff when, you know, you've got the the customer crying because the cat's just been put down or or there's been an accident and so there's a sudden change to the health of their animals or a herd might be lost or, you know, wiped out during a bushfire or during a foot and mouth disease or whatever it might be. And it, it is around what happens to the customer gets transferred onto you as the vet. And so that transference isn't just a one-off. It, it happens unconsciously and consciously every day. And so that builds up as well. And if we don't 
name it and call it, then the danger for that is we assume that we should be able to deal with it and it becomes, if you like, the hidden enemy. So what do we do about it? Because to some degree we do have to deal with it because it is part of our that is part of our job. Mm. But I totally see what you're saying that that you take it, take it, take it until the until something breaks. I think naming it and identifying it, that's a big first step. That was such an epiphany for me, just to, for someone outside of our profession to say, Oh, but you do realize this is actually cumulative stress. Like this is a pretty serious thing and this is you know, vicarious trauma when you're standing in that room and, and the person on the other side of the table is having potentially the worst day of their life and you're there. Yeah. But that's pretty powerful. And then I think it really comes back to healthy coping mechanisms. You know, what do you do in the face of, of stress, of work stress, and, and what works for you and what helps for you? I just want to jump in there for, for one second. I totally agree with the whole cumulative stress thing that just builds up, builds up, and it's done because yeah. as a hospital director... But three years ago, I was in a situation where I was in charge of probably one of the largest emergency hospitals in Australia, but then project planning the next one. And this is not something that was put on my shoulders. This is something that I actively decided to do. And it just built up to the point where all of a sudden, in the middle of a meeting, someone goes, hey, Gerardo, can you do this? And I almost cried. And I was like, yeah, that was like, okay, you know, okay, here I am right in the end. We'll talk about burnout later. But my, 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 my feel though, okay, because as a emergency veterinarian, our average euthanasia rate is 20, 25%, right? So one in four, one in five patients that come and sees us is humanely euthanized. That might be massively different from a, a shelter worker who euthanizes every Tuesday. Maybe. 20 pets right and that would just you know that's that's traumatic so running we say like we say cumulative stress does perspective come into it because for me like my patients almost need euthanasia you know mm. like there is a valid yeah. reason why like i I, yeah. I get the pain that the owner's going through yeah but you can yeah. rationalize it yeah justify it it's a, it's, it's an it's an act of service it's an act of service yeah. And I think um, what how we, we call that, when you talk about perspective, uh, Gerardo, we call that your mindset. So, you know, you can um, frame that up and say, you know, this needs to happen. So then you don't take on board that transference of that emotion. But if for any reason, and it's not just what's happening right in front of you with that particular customer, it's what's happened in your day, what's happened at home, what's happened in the last week at home. And so they can potentially be triggers so it could be that you've got to euthanasia but it might be that they bring in let's say a five-year-old that looks exactly like your five-year-old or the five-year-old says exactly what your five-year-old says and all of a sudden you're not there as a vet you're there as a parent and then that becomes the trigger and that's the shit that goes up underneath you and starts to become that vicarious trauma. And so if you like, your head is fighting two things. It's, it's, it's saying, I know from a professional perspective, but gee, this is also, I'm a dad. And so it's when you get that, if you like, clashing or contradictions or just triggers simultaneously that's the thing that we need and what we train people to do is be alert to those because they will happen 
So it's, it's yeah, awareness a, of triggers. Yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah, for me as a trigger is, um, <laughs> this is kind of sad, but it's old men crying. Yes. Yeah. 100%. Old men crying. Oh, my freaking yes. God. I just like, I, 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 it, it just gets in my soul. Don't get me started. <laughs> I'm with you, Gerardo. I feel the same about euthanasias in general. I feel I always sort of felt kind of an honour to be there in that moment to help that patient and to try and give that family or that client the best version of that event as I could, if I, if that makes sense. I sort of support them through that moment and kind of I felt proud that they saw me. It's sort of a gift, but, and I wonder if you agree with this, but maybe it's different in emergency, is when you yeah, know that family personally, you know where I work is where I live. So if you know that family personally or you've looked after that pet through, you know, 10 years of, of your career and it's just been hit by a car and it's completely unsalvageable, you know, those ones you can, as Rhonda said, you can feel it percolating up and you think, oh, gosh, they're the ones that you walk out of the room and have to have a moment and oh, gather yourself mm. together. They're, they're just some that get under your skin. Yeah, and I think the thing that really is linked to that and what both of you are saying is very much around connection. So, mm. you know, when we talk about vicarious trauma and we talk about cumulative trauma, one of the things and when you were asking Hubert, well, how do you deal with this? And, and Gerardo, you were speaking about perspective. Well, perspective is one thing or the mindset's one thing. The second is about connection because often what happens is people go home after work, they don't talk about it because they don't want to upset anyone else in the family they don't have time to talk to their colleagues because everyone's racing around like headless chooks and so they don't connect about it and so that day bleed it goes into another day and into another day and so when you don't have the connection to talk about those things then that becomes its own build up internally and certainly from our research that we've done longitudinally over the past eight years our research has shown that connection if we have connection we can actually reduce the risk of any depressive or long-term anxiety moving into post-traumatic stress by over 80%. Connection being? Connection to people. People, just people. So family. Yep, friends. loved ones. And yep. Because one of the biggest things with emergency and critical care is that you work night times and weekends, you lose connections with your friends, you, you mm. lose connections with your uni mates, and then all of a sudden you find yourself in a Tuesday morning and no one's, everyone's working, like you haven't built that thing that helps yeah. support you. But, yeah. And, yeah. and that's a that's yeah. a really good point, Gerardo, because that's exactly, you know, certainly shift workers find that all the time. And we find that in other professions like the medical profession, like surgeons, you know, they're doing long stints of an evening. They come home and in the morning when they want to talk to someone else, well, all their surgeon colleagues are up and in surgery. I think connection's a huge challenge for our profession. I think it, I feel like it starts even in vet school, you know, because we're, um, we smell bad, we're covered in poo, our friends that aren't studying vet all slowly drop away, they don't quite understand us, we speak a different language, we're sort of becoming connected to our vet cohort because it's a closed faculty, so we're all sort of weirdos together. We together. all marry we each, other, each other. Marrying each other. And then um, when we're... Is this not we're... incestuous, is it? 
Totally, totally. Oh yes, now our profession is incestuous. Okay, it's just one hundred percent because vet, only vets only vets can understand vets. Okay. Yeah. Quick experiment. Everybody in this conversation who is married or in a relationship with another veterinarian, put up your hand. Look at you three. <laughs> yeah, Rhonda, what's wrong with you? You, you obviously haven't found you, Rhonda. You haven't found the love of your life yet, and I'm sure he's going to be a veterinarian. <laughs> You three will be delighted to know in my first year out as a psychologist and I went and, and went to this group and I saw all these psychologists together. I came home and I said, shit, I'll never marry a psychologist. <laughs> in all seriousness, though, don't you think, remember back to when you're a new grad and um, your non-vet friends say, oh, we're going out for dinner and we're meeting at 6.30 and you're like, I'm never going to get there. And then if you do get there, you're an hour late. They've ordered dinner. Yep. You've got anal glands on you. Like it's hard work to maintain those connections. I think naturally we are drawn back to our vet friends and we're all equally busy and bad at maintaining those connections and then add a few emergency vets into the mix and it's like, how have we even got any friends at all? No, that's right. How have you got friends at all? Exactly right. And I think, yeah, when we just, when Hubert was talking about the system of support program, that's one of the things that we build into it. It is about that connection and it is about building a network within the profession and, and diversifying who people are talking to within the profession. So powerful, isn't it? Being able to share stories and say, oh, that happened to me. Oh that's the same at my clinic and then kind of feel like, all right, we're all in this together and you're not just suffering or stressing or something about something uh, is one person on an island, you know, part of something bigger. And I think that's really powerful. I feel like it, it has to be a, a pre-planned conscious decision as to who I'm going to offload to. Cause there's also there's several reasons why we don't connect. Even if you have friends, I don't want to whinge, be the whinge. I always complain about work. I'm your, I'm your friend, work. mate. Hubert, I'm your friend. Your okay. friend. No, but you know what I mean. <laughs> you don't know, just want to talk work to your work friends. Your wife doesn't want to hear about it. Well, I feel like your wife doesn't hear about it all the time. Mm. There's also a culture within the profession of suck it up. It's part of the job. Stop, mm. stop being a little princess about it. Mm. Um, so there's a little bit of that where you don't want to show weakness. So I, I almost feel like you have to have an agreement with somebody and say, hey, mate, can I offload on you every now and again? I know, for example, a friend of mine is married to somebody in the special forces in the military. I can imagine there'd be a fair, fair amount of stressful, traumatic events yeah. in that job. And they have to, they, they say to them, you're not supposed to talk out about what happens, but we appreciate that you have to talk. So pick one person. Um, mm. It can be your wife if you want to or your, or your partner, but somebody has to be your sounding board that you can tell them just your war stories, and literally your war stories. Yeah, and you are right, Hubert, that it is, it's not ever, you, you know, you don't have a, a huge range of people that you would do that with. And it is about selecting someone you trust, someone who will understand what you're talking about, and that they get it. And so there's not that judgment of, you know, just suck it up, princess, that, that there is an empathy, a genuine empathy, not just, oh, well, I'll just go through the motions here. If we put that on a more formalised setting, a lot of professions now are introducing formal debriefs so that they have those on a regular basis with a team or a group so that they are not only debriefing at an operational level of what's taken place, say from a clinical level, but they're also then debriefing from a what we call a psychological level. How has this affected me through this week or this particular event? So that it allows people to process at those two very different levels. We all dive for the clinical 
clinical side first, the operational side. So, you know, what could we have done differently? But the key one for me is then pushing that aside and being able to say, okay, but how was I affected? How did I feel? Hmm. That's really useful. I think that sounds like it's a project for every practice to to put into place to ask all of your your, your employees who's your who's your buddy who's your dive buddy, to, yes. like they say in the dive world to, so to, to dive alone is to die alone. What's that is yes. it saying when you do your dive course? I think a, a lot of senior vets end up mentoring junior vets, but yeah. I feel like senior vets probably need a real sounding board. Mm as well and we probably are relying on friendships and having our trusted buddies that we can say oh my god this happened today and I just completely made an error or whatever and I think that largely comes down to workplace culture and how you get on with the other vets and what time you have in the day to be able to say oh mate that was a tough case how are you we we, we call them co-striders co-striders is someone who is running along the same pathway as you you can share the wins with and you can commiserate with it's like, I understand that. I tried that. That sucked. And yes, oh, I appreciate the challenges you're facing. It's like this common understanding of the, the pains. But like, it'd be great to have it. Like, I think if you're having a co-strider, a co-strider that helps you move forward, right? As opposed to a co-strider that just lets you dump your shit and then just think the world's bad. It's like, okay, so what, what's your thoughts? How are you going to change that? How are you going to shift that? What are you going to do now? The key thing for me is the questions. If you're going to support someone, listen, hear, understand. It's like, okay, what's what's up to now? What do you want to do now? Yeah, and I think you're right, Gerardo. It is being able to say, what have I experienced? But then it's what's what's next? So they're not just rolling in the same stuff. They're actually going to the next level. And I think just coming back to Louise's point, which is a really important one, is the workplace culture, because it ties in with what Hubert said about the whole thing of, you know, suck it up, princess. If if that, and that's a common thing where a lot of professions where that you do have a lot of perfectionism, there is little tolerance for being able to download. And so if we formalise it more, it then stops that sense of failure. It stops that negativity of perception because really it's just part of the way we do business. It's part of the way we do the profession. So rather than, oh, you need a debrief? Oh, gee, that's a little bit odd. It becomes the way in which we operate. And so just as you get your utensils out, just as you would get your um, tools of the trade out for an operation, it's part of that that package and that's how we've been building it in so that there's not a choice and then in that choice there's not that sense of judgment or loading of capability do do, do you uh, for me okay personally i think there needs to be a communication like a communication of an expectation hey look Mm -hmm. I'd like, I've just went through this and I just, I just need to fucking let this go. Can you hear me out here? And just, just listen to me as opposed to, you know, you're in the middle of typing a history and someone just wants to dump their stuff in you. And you're like, you know, I'm trying to type this history and get the next console. And you're like, oh, okay. oh, wow. Okay. This is deep now. This is deep shit. Oh, someone's, sh- crying. Yep. someone's crying. Someone's crying here and I'm typing a history. Oh my God. Okay. You know, like I, I, I think there needs to be this thing. It's like, Hey, Hey G. Hey Louisa. Hey Rhonda. Hey, hey Rhonda. I can can we have a chat? Can we have a chat? I I, I need your help here. 
I, I need to unload. Like, yeah. like, like, I, like I've, I feel like there just needs to be that communication so that that person can understand their role in yeah. that process. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Because otherwise, they're hit from the side, and then you get vicarious trauma happening for the next person. <laughs> so you get the domino effect. Can I can I backtrack a little bit? No, I, I, yes, by all means. No, please don't. You mentioned the vicarious trauma again, and I want to go back to the. So we've talked about what can you do after the fact to get this out of your system, I suppose, to to deal with it. But in the situation can be really hard to deal with sometimes and it's interesting that you you guys mentioned that being like the the old the old man that was a dying dog or something and you said about the five-year-old the kid so that's become my trigger Mm. family ever since i've had kids of my own now i empathize really really strongly with families who come in with with whether it's a euthanasia or anything like that and um you know i i got really good at at reframing it uh, all, all the traumatic things so i i wouldn't i don't think i cried about a euthanasia or something like that for almost 15 years of my career and then one night It'll at work tomorrow. one night at work no 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 that's <laughs> it it happened about a couple of years ago one night at work i was in a euthanasia and i had to i had to rush i was like i actually can't i had to i have to go outside and cry <laughs> i was so upset about it i don't know how do you deal with that and and I, i've got another question in that question is i feel like I moved towards it more these days. Whereas I used to try and avoid those emotions. Go, okay, this is going to be stressful. But just cut it off. You know, just deal with it, kid. Focus on the clinical aspect and just forget about it. And now I, it's almost like I embrace it a little bit. And yeah. somehow that's better. I feel like it's better. It's it's tough in the moment. Yeah. Um, but I'll, you know, I'll go out the back and cry and say to the nurses, "Man, that was really really tough. Mm-hmm. I struggled with that." But yeah. somebody will give you a hug and, and you move on. I don't know what. Yeah. Do how and, do you deal with think- it in the moment? Yeah, and I think, Hubert, that's really and, and, and really great that you share that because, once again, we still have in, in some professions and some people's perception that if expressing your feelings, you're weak. And, you know, that's the last thing we want as a statement. For us, as psychologists, we're saying you express your feelings, you're strong because it takes a damn lot of effort to acknowledge that. And so part of the systems of support um, is what we're talking about is really tap into your belief systems, understand what are those triggers, really tap into what your emotions are so you can express them and get them out. Because the more we push them down, it it comes back to what Gerardo was talking about, that's when the resistance really builds up and that's when often you get the people going from zero to 100 from coping one day to absolutely dropping the next. And so our message is you have strength through your emotions and through sharing those. And they're far from a weakness and tears are not a weakness. And and it is about being able to, for people to actually not be afraid of feelings. Because I think one of the things of why people don't want to share feelings is generally the people who are seeing those feelings don't know what to do about them. And they're going, oh, no, 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 don't do that. The person's crying. What do we do? <laughs> so people people get frightened of it or get anxious by it. And so they, they, they say to people, stop, stop. And so what's the messaging we're giving our kids um, about that emotions are there to be expressed? So, okay, okay. So, so what, what advice would you give someone? So here I am. I come over to Hubert and I go, Hubert, 
I need to unload. And Hubert's like, oh my God, I got almost all this shit that I need to do tonight. But mm. yeah, sure, I'll listen to you, G, unload. And then, and then here I am, I unload about this poor old timer. You know, he's like 80 years old. And I just put his 15-year-old Westie that tried to bite me as I was trying to euthanize it. And <laughs> this, this Westie was the favorite dog of his wife for 50 years, right? And that was and all. she did too? She she's dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The wife died, and he, he says to you, and he says to you, this is the only thing I have left of my wife. This is the yeah. only. Oh my god, I've heard that like at least several thousand times. Okay, yeah. This this is the this is only the last memory. This is the last memory. This is the last thing I have of my wife, and I'm putting this little Westie to sleep. So I go to Hubert after. I'm like Hubert, I need to unload. So 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 Hubert and I in are in, in our lunchroom. And like Hubert, I can't believe this man. This is the nicest dude ever because old guys are obviously so kind of sweet. And I, I put this dog to sleep and I do not know how to cope with this oh, cry. Okay. Mm. What does Hubert do there? He's like, does, does he say, hey, dude, dude, does he slap me in the face and go, hey, gee, gee, settle down, motherfucker. Come on. You know? <laughs> You got this. He's a care. Hubert's a caring and sharing individual, isn't he? Yeah, no, that, that, that's that, that, that's a. a a a is a is Hubert's like not very caring. Okay, B he's like, oh man, um, I didn't like. I don't know. <laughs> I I I don't even know what to say in those situations. Hubert, do you know what to say in those situations? Oh. So so you know, if I was yeah. if if Hubert was with me, I'd say Hubert, just listen. He doesn't have to say much at all. He just needs to be there and to listen because, you know, for you, Gerardo, when you're going through all of that, you, there's a space for just unloading that. So for the first part is just to, to really be able to listen. And one of the things that we look at in the program is how does the listener sit comfortably with all that emotion? And so, therefore, it is about the, the training on being able to just summarise, just to be able to listen, just let people say, I feel like shit, I feel guilty, I feel this or whatever it might be. Because when people are uncomfortable, they go, don't feel like that. Or, no, 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 you don't have to feel guilty. But the person is feeling guilty. So they need to be able to express it. So, you know, for me, that's the first stage for Hubert. Okay, and and then he comes in for the like the hug, the weird hug, that, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, dude, I didn't ask for that. I just wanted to listen, and you're coming in for the weird hug. <laughs> well, I think I think what you're highlighting is you got to know your audience, and you know, is is physical connection something that a person feels comfortable with, or would absolutely run a mile and think, hang on, Hubert's jumping me here. <laughs> I might nuzzle. I'm, I'm fairly thin. I would nuzzle against Hubert's rub. neck. I'm going to nuzzle. Rub the back. I'll be nuzzle. My, my facial hair against his neck going, no, 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 no. <laughs> Suddenly he's changing all his shifts so yes. they don't coincide with yours. That's right. That's right. He, he, I'm like, I can watch Hubert now. He is looking extremely uncomfortable right away. Right? <laughs> yeah, no. no, I'm thinking, can I sneak in a kiss while we can't leave? <laughs> <laughs> just being genuine with your own reactions yeah because if you're saying oh i've got to hold it all in for the sake of gerardo then that's not helping anyone mm -hmm. because there's sort of that that barrier so there is about being able to listen and and the whole thing is you know gerardo may not want anything else other than just to let that all go and say gee i feel better thanks very much and he's out of there 
So, you know, we've got to stop making assumptions that we've got to make them feel better or we've got to move them along straight away because otherwise whose needs are being met here? Is that Hubert? Is that Hubert's anxiousness that uh, Gerardo's got to walk out of here smiling? Well, he doesn't have to. Mm. Wow. Yes. It's the, the, the expectation you think in your own head about the outcome that you need to generate in this interaction with that person who is going through trauma. Yeah, be happy and you've got to smile before I'll let you go. Yes, and if you don't, I'm going to slap you. I'm going to yep. feed you caffeine and sugar at the same yep. time and somehow you walk out of there happy. That's right. Exactly. So it is exactly what you said, Gerardo. It is about what are those expectations and what are my expectations that I'm placing on you? And I haven't even checked that out. I don't even know where to go from here. It's like, yeah. do, do, do you ask the question? You ask the question like, okay, now that you've unloaded, what do you want from yeah. me? Well, um, now, you know, that, that I, usually the person like you, Gerardo, would say, um, you know, oh, gee, thanks. That's, you know, I feel much better. And you just walk out. Or, you know, there then might be a question of just an open question. So how are you feeling now? Ah, love it. Rhonda, that's gold. Because I shit you not, there are thousands of veterinarians out there that will listen to this maybe in that situation mm-hmm. where their colleague has their nurse their reception team member or something or their vet, their fellow veterinarian has come and unloaded on them and they're like what do i do with this what's my responsibility here it's it's you know, it's shut up empathize listen and then just go how do you feel hmm. yeah exactly oh because you you get your guidance from the person as you said whether that's the nurse whether that's the administrator whether that's another veterinary colleague they will give you the guidance there. Wow. Gold. It's really gold. Um, Randa Louisa, how are you for time? I have much more to talk about, but I know we can't talk all night. Yeah, um, I, have, I have another question as well, but I'm fairly certain it's going to be something that's going to like just blow this out to like another 20 minutes. You you ask Hubert. You go <laughs> Hubert first. I was going to talk about burnout, but I think it's too too big for five minutes. Oh, but that, that was exactly the same thing. It's a good starting point, Hubert. Why don't we just um, start tackling the front end of burnout? Because I think it's a really important one. And then we can come back another time and explore it further. Well, Reggie, you ask your burnout question, right? Yeah, so, the, so, so my big thing is, right, so we do engagement surveys every year and there are common themes. There are common things that come up, but I feel like as if the themes that come up are influenced by the things that we say and the things that we feed. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so the next thing is now this fucking word burnout, burnout. <laughs> okay. So again, I say the fucking word burnout. It's only because it's like, I don't know if, of the people out there really understand what burnout is. Burnout is not tired. Burnout is like, you know, I'm a little bit sleepy and I rocked at the work and I, you know, didn't perform quite well today. And I've, you know what? I think I'm burnt out. Fatigue. I'm I'm burnt out. Right. So Hubert's smiling here because I'm ranting, but no, I know. I agree. It's exactly. Yeah. But, but like, so, so for me, like I, I feel, I feel that people really need to understand what burnout means. And for me, I had, I had a conversation with our leadership team and say, hey, look, you get to catch this word, okay? This, this is a catchphrase right now. And because one of our vets was like, oh, I feel burnt out. 
And then one of our senior vets goes, well, why do you feel burnt out? Oh, because I woke up this morning and I felt a bit tired. Yeah, and and you're right. I think we do have to catch that language. You know, it's a, that's what happened with the word anxiety. Oh, everyone love was all it. Of a sudden it just went straight action. there. And so it's all of a sudden we've got a whole population of anxiety. And and for those who have children, will also know the same thing happened when all of a sudden the labelling of ADHD came in. Just because your kid ran around, it was like you're being yeah. diagnosed with ADHD. Yeah, kids just running around like a normal kid. So I think you're spot on with language and I think we do have to catch ourselves and not get caught up in that. And for me, there is a continuum. As you've all highlighted, there's tiredness, there's fatigue, there's restlessness, there's disappointment, there's frustration. There's all of those things that happen as a vet. But burnout is right at the other end of that continuum. And that is a cumulative effect over a long period of time that is at a psychological at a cognitive and at a physical level so it's got a three prong part to it so the three prongs so if I look at the physical is that people feel like they're on a never-ending merry-go-round and can't get off or feel like they are totally isolated Uh, even though they might be surrounded by a lot of people they're just not connecting at all with anyone so they feel like they're in their own world mentally they feel totally overwhelmed or numb so that even though lots of things are happening around them they either have gone into this state where they just can't even process anything any longer so there's like that numbness and the third is the psychological or the emotional side and for that is that people can't connect with their feelings any longer so there's that what is called like a disassociation from their own feelings so it doesn't matter what feelings they are they actually can't connect with those either so there's a a lack of connection externally there's a lack of collect connection internally with themselves what does that look like if you say you can't connect with your emotions how would you know when this is happening to you or, or yeah, you, there's it, a sense of there's a sense of nothingness there's that sense of you know the world spinning And you just are looking from the outside in at yourself and at others. And there's just a nothingness or a numbness there. So people are saying, aren't you upset or aren't you feeling this? And your answer is no to everything. Rhonda, with burnout, because I definitely experienced burnout in my previous role, and I think it was probably a slow process of maybe three years of getting to that point of, this I just didn't love the job that I had previously loved and I did feel numb and one day I got to work and I was sitting in the car and I just like physically could not move my legs to get out of the car Mm. to do another 12-hour day and then go on call and I I think I was very lucky because I had the option of saying right that's it take a break and make, make a bit of a decision or have a bit of a chance to think do you still love this profession do you still love this work is it just this one environment that has led to this burnout. Do you want to talk, Rhonda, to the component of burnout that occurs because of the way that you're managed or the environment that you're in? It's not a weakness of the individual necessarily. It's it's how, you know, where they are and, and how they're managed that 
has contributed to that essentially yeah. Yeah. And, and I think you know that's a really good point Louisa and, and for us it's sort of what what Louisa's speaking about is what's around you so what's the system around you that is impacting upon you and it goes back to what Gerardo spoke about before and the key indicator of that is a sense of loss of control a sense of you're being done to and there's nothing that you can either decide or, or influence because you just feel everything's outside your control. And so those things like hours of working, the types of work, the being on call, then coming back and doing another 50 cases the next day and, and feeling like you can't influence that or there's no room for communication to negotiate that, that done-to feeling people just wear down and wear down and wear down until, like Louisa, their, their brain can't express it, but they send messages to the, the body, which is like, you're not going to move your legs because you're not getting out of this car. And that's the way I'm going to tell you that mm. you aren't actually going to be part of this any longer. Mm. And that's actually the sad thing what happens when you put that on steroids is people get sick and that's the way that they then, their body makes them make a decision about their profession. Rhonda and I have had this really awful discussion. This is probably getting a bit deep and dark, but in our profession, there's only some certain number of ways that you would leave the profession and it's either retirement. Yeah. At this point in time, seems like unlikely for a lot of vets, really. I think they're going to pull the pin a lot earlier. So it's either burnout suicide it's just terrible when you think about it and what we want to do is get away from that didactic thinking because that's the that's the didactic thinking that people then feel they've got no choice and and I'd like to put my hand up and say that's a great topic to talk about that didactic thinking because for me that's the essence of being able to retrieve yourself from feeling like you're on the slippery slide to burnout. Okay, that sounds like a big topic. Let's let's bookmark this and say part two. Part two, so part two, two is burnout. Can we wrap up with the last question? You've got an audience of all of the veterinary new grads of the world, mm. and you have a couple of minutes to just give them your one bit of advice. I normally ask this of the vets because they've yeah. been through it. So Louisa, we'll start with you. Oh, just be kind to yourself. Like no one's going to be as loving and as caring of you as you. And you really do have to just be kind and just accept yourself for who you are. I have this sort of mantra. I know Gerardo was talking about little voices in his head and I think we all have them. And one of them that goes around and around if I'm in a situation where I don't really know what the diagnosis is or I feel a bit out of my depth is just, well, I'm only human. Like I'm one person. I'm, a, I'm not a robot. I'm qualified from vet school. Someone thought I was worthy of a certificate, you know, it's all right. Like, just do your best and, and I'm okay with that. But I think it probably comes a fair bit of experience and maturity and life experiences and maybe post-grad qualifications maybe get you to that point where you can sit there and go, no, 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 I'm all right. I'm okay with this. But that would be my biggest thing is just be kind to yourself because I've just, not to frame it as a negative, but just through mentoring, I have been really quite surprised at the negative thoughts that new grads have, you know, can be so unkind to themselves. And it's like, mm. mate. You're part of this profession. Like, welcome. We want you here. You're here. You've yeah. made it. Yeah. Like, you know, don't cut yourself down. That expectation that that, that you're going to be great from the start. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you have to be great from the no. start. Well, are you surprised that you sucked at that? Of course you're going to suck then. Mm. Rhonda, what about you? Advice for you? I mean, you've spoken to professions of all sorts. And I'm sure many of, the, many of the problems must be the same. So what, what do you advise a bunch of people about to embark on this career of ours? I'd like to say in, in conjunction with what Louisa said is no question is a dumb question. That, you know, often we put a real filter, oh, I shouldn't ask that, I should know it. And so I always say no question is a dumb question. It's dumb if you don't ask mm -hmm. because you're making that assumption that there's a judgment that's going to be made of you. And, you know, I've never experienced any profession where they aren't encouraging of new grads and new prof professionals into that sector to absorb and ask as many questions as possible. Yeah. Yeah. You're so bad at that. I've realized it about myself. You think you don't care what people think, but deep down we really do care what people think and we do so hate to look stupid. And just to recognize that for me is a big thing to go, why, why am I scared of this? I mean, why am I scared of asking a question? It's because I don't want to look stupid, but who cares if I look stupid? Nobody nobody mm. cares as much about me as I do. Mm. Just ask mm. it. Look stupid, mm. so what? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Guys, that was really, really amazing, and we will definitely have you back. Thank you very much, Hubert. It's been a delight to uh, have met you, and I really enjoyed this opportunity. You know those conversations that you have at conferences, back in the days when we still had big vet conferences, when people are chatting to the lecturers and asking questions and you hear things like, this isn't really in the books, but here's what I think. It's in those kinds of conversations that the best nuggets of wisdom appear, the nitty gritty real life details that you can only get from years and years of experience. And it's exactly those kinds of conversations that we try to emulate on the VetVault clinical podcasts. We don't want lectures. We want to hear about the challenges, the tips, the stuff-ups, the this is how I do it. Go to vvn.supercast.net to join in the conversation.